Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Hot Pierre summer is over. We're now on to the fall of Pierre. Evan, ever since you ran into him at the arena, it has just been an endless topsy-turvy ride, and unfortunately, our memes have become dreams. It's over. He didn't miss for like four months, and then that was it. What a news cycle that has all unraveled in like the last 15 minutes, it seems like. I'm reading these Michael Anlauer quotes right now, and I'm like, can we slow down and spread this out over a few episodes by chance? It's a lot. It is scorched earth. Yeah. And some of the reports coming out about potential new GMs to replace Dorian. Oh, this is this is our dream. This is every content creator's dream today. I like when other teams potentially make missteps before they even happen so we can like kind of bathe in their misery. Yeah, it's it's a nice step away from your own history of misery. You get out of your own reality for a little bit. No, I'm not even just talking about the Red Wings. Like, you know, you dented the rear bumper on your car or you had a bad day at work. Just enjoy what's happening to the Ottawa Senators right now. I have a few uh, Sens fan friends, and I did message them saying, <laughs> this this is a bit much from the hockey gods. I actually do feel for it's you. It's been a terrible, basically, seven days for Sens fans. Yeah. This is the worst day of your life so, so far. So far, yeah. Anyhow. The Red Wings did some cool stuff, and we actually have a, a lot of good Red Wings content today. It's just funny how the NHL sometimes is like, hey, the the, the stuff after your Red Wings conversations to start the show, it's going to be pretty meaty. So thank you, NHL, and apologies to our Sens fan friends. Although, I guess with the rivalry now, not. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, which is a big statement, and more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're going to be talking about Detroit's electric late game win over Ilya Sorokin and the New York Islanders, which was uh, very fun and very surprising, as well as the storylines to take away from that game and a look forward to their next two games before our next episode. We'll also be talking about some news actually for Boston, which is relevant to the Red Wings, and we'll be checking in with Prashanth Iyer, part of the Winged Wheel Podcast you know, content family, hosts of Expected by Whom, where we take a look at the Red Wings by the numbers so far this season to get a little bit of insight and analysis on what the underlying numbers compared to the eye test say about these Detroit Red Wings. We'll then get into some NHL news, which, I mean, some is an understatement. Ottawa is going to be forfeiting a first-round pick. The rumors ended up being true. Pierre Dorian has been relieved of his duties as general manager of the Ottawa Senators, and Michael Einlauer did not hold back in his press conference as a brand new owner in the NHL. Some news about Nick Backstrom out of Washington and more before overtime. Before all that, I want to let you know, this is your last chance. This Saturday is Winged Wheel podcasting out at the LCA, Saturday, November 4th against the Boston Bruins. You've heard me do this spiel enough. Why don't we let Ken Daniels take it over to tell you about Winged Wheel podcast night at the LCA. Hey, Red Wing fans, the fabulous Wing Wheel podcast night at Little Caesars Arena is coming up this Saturday against the Boston Bruins. And with tickets, you get into the game, of course, as well as access to the fabulous pregame live recording of the Wing Wheel podcast featuring Chris Osgood and me. Plus, a special edition co-branded Detroit Red Wings Wing Wheel podcast beanie. Tickets are discounted. And the great part, the portion of the proceeds benefit 
the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Now, very few tickets remain, so this is your last chance to grab them. Go to wingwheelpodcast.com slash redwings or go to the link in the Wingwheel Podcast bio on Twitter or Instagram. Hope to see you there. Thank you to Ken for recording that. Additionally, the Wingwheel Podcast is supported almost entirely by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to join the Dub Dub Club, you get access to benefits like our Wingwheel Podcast exclusive Discord. You're automatically entered into all of our giveaways that we do. For example, this season and last season, actually, we're giving away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game, something that we're proud to continue. The vast, vast majority of those going to our Patreon supporters. So again, patreon.com slash podcast if you want access to all of that, as well as our uh, bonus content, which posts right after these main shows, our bonus overtime episodes. So all of that and lots more, it helps us to do everything that we do. Let's talk about Detroit's win over the New York Islanders. This game to me, I mean, a, a Red Wings Islanders game, you look at the amount of offensive talent on those teams, you look at the play style of those teams. I feel like the joke the last 10 times that they've played is, oh boy, what a barn burner. And I think I texted one of you, you know, almost at the end of the second period saying, oh boy, what a barn burner. Like It was just one of those games where someone couldn't break through. And I thought after the Islanders scored at the end of the second period, uh, shorthanded goal, kind of a killer for the Red Wings. Ilya Sorokin's one of the best goalies in the league. This is trending to be like the Winnipeg game, but somehow feeling worse. And then Detroit breaks through for four goals on Elias Sorokin to win dramatically in overtime. What a result. What an important win, a gutsy win for the Red Wings. We said it last episode, and this was the inverse of it. When a game's going horribly, boring, dull, whatever you want to call it, and the Red Wings aren't generating much, although I feel like they had a lot more chances in the first two periods against the Islanders than they did Boston. They just got sorokin But they weren't generating a ton. And then they go down one nothing in the third, then they go... 2-0 doubt early in the third. Wings games of years past, most of us could have comfortably turned off the TV at that point. Like the Boston game, we said, hey, there's a chance. It didn't happen, but we'll stick around because there's a chance. Same thing with the Islanders. Hey, there's a chance. And it actually came to fruition. They actually did complete the comeback. And again, against a very defensively stingy team like the Islanders with arguably the best goalie in the world behind them. So it's not a small feat to shovel four goals in in basically a period worth of time. The fact that this took place right after we had the conversation of, you know, Detroit really hangs in there for games and it's allowing them to an opportunity, even if it's not ideal for them to only step into a game in the third period, it's allowing them to jump in in the third period. As you're alluding to, Brad, you could almost predict how 60 minutes would have gone for Detroit before but now we've seen multiple examples of this. And after last episode, the first game after, it was yet another example. And it was a prime one where Detroit was resilient. They hung in there. And the odds were stacked against them because of how good Sorokin is. Like, yes, they're defensively stingy, the Islanders. But, you know, Sorokin is a game-breaker level talented goalie. And it looked like he was Sorokining the Red Wings. And the fact that they turned it around, that's going to be... You can't rely on that game after game, I'll say that. Like This isn't going to make Detroit a 115-point team this season. You can't be doing that game after game. You need to find ways to play 60 minutes, and that's my criticism of Detroit of late, is you need to find a way to break through earlier. Even if you know they played better against Winnipeg and the Islanders than they did against Boston, the results still need to be there before the third. 
But if you can salvage points in these games, even if it was just one, that makes a difference. Daniel Sprong scored a goal that was the inverse of his first two goals, which is one, he actually took a shot, and two, he actually you know, showed why he's a talented goal scorer. That was, to me, a goal scorer's goal. You drag the puck inside around a defender, even if they get the stick on it or the puck bobbles a little bit, he still finds a way to fire the shot. You get the goalie moving, especially such a sound goalie like Sorokin. You start to create your own space and you fire at home with great execution. Brad, you know more about stick angles and, and you know, shot efficiency than I do. That was, to me, the hallmark of why Daniel Sprong was brought in. Yeah, it was great to see, not only from a skill standpoint, but getting back to one of the points we made a couple minutes ago where they were getting Sorokin for the first two periods. There was a moment in the second period where Clem Costin made a really good play to spring Daniel Sprong on a two-on-one, no pun intended. And he went to go high glove on Sorokin, and Sorokin made a very difficult save look unbelievably easy. Which was the point where I was saying, yeah, this might be all she wrote for the night. Nothing's getting past Sorokin. And then he comes down, execute the next period, executes that difficult play, changes the angle on Sorokin, and just rips it. And with the angle he was skating and the way the puck was, accuracy is kind of a hope and a prayer on that one. So you, for the most part, are just firing it to an area. Mm-hmm. And I think that one got under Sorokin's arm, but you can only play the hand you're dealt. And he executed it perfectly, which most players would not have been able to do. Jake Wallman, not even a, two minutes later, fired one home off of a you know scrambling offensive zone pressure situation, and that just happened to get through. It wasn't the, the best goal of his career, but it got through. That one was from Sider and Raymond. Spr- well, that was the goal that the Red Wings were missing in the first two periods. They got a lot of shots and a lot of good chances, but there wasn't enough going on in front of Sorokin on a lot of those chances, and there wasn't a lot of second chances. So finally setting it up, be like, all right, he's an amazing goalie. Might help if he can't see the puck. Yeah. Screen him. Create traffic. That's the kind of thing that makes a difference when the goalie's going to just stop everything otherwise. Cider and Raymond assisted Jake Wallman's goal, and then JT Comfer uh, scored one of the easiest goals of his career off of an unreal look from Mo Sider at the point. We've seen Mo Sider do this before. He'll look off a defender. He'll let his body drift a little bit. He won't tell people with his eyes or his body that he sees a guy wide open to the the right of the goalie, which is what he saw in JT Confer. Fired a perfect pass down low. That is exceptionally hard to do. Sider made that look easy. I just want you to know playing from the blue line, like that is an exceptionally hard seam to find, a pass to execute. And much like a quarterback, doesn't want to give away his reads and, and why some quarterbacks get picked off more than others. Defensemen from the blue line, you don't want to give away your reads like that. Any player on the ice, really. And Sider is masterful at being able to execute with very little tells that he's going to do it. Awesome look at JT Comfer, who who scored the goal to go ahead. 7.55 in the third was Daniel Sprong's goal, and JT Comfer's third goal to take the lead was at 11.43 in the third. So that was that's how quick that sequence happened. And it's so funny, we talked about this last episode. Mo Sider, who's, we've talked a lot about, you know, expectations are sky high for him. He wants to step into that elite status of the upper echelon of NHL defensemen. And so you you hold him to task on getting better. And by those standards, he's not having his best season. And even at not his best season, he's making plays like that and contributing offensively. He's a point per game, isn't he right now? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an off year for Mo Sider so far. That's, you'll absolutely take it. Now, they're leading 3-2, and by no means did he think it was a given that they were going to win the game, but the Perron penalty late in the game was a killer to me. Like It was just such an avoidable penalty, and then you knew the moment that penalty was taken. 
Yeah, someone actually posted that in our group chat like five seconds before the puck went in. Like, oh, they're absolutely scoring on this power play. And then. And then they did. And that's the kind of thing that I think the Red Wings need to to work on. Like, they're good enough now where their minor penalties are going to make a difference in their game. And I don't think they've been the most disciplined team. There have been a lot of kind of boneheaded penalties, even if not boneheaded, inopportune, where, you know, you worked hard for these goals. They're stingy games. You don't have... Some games, I, I mean, I know the Red Wings have been scoring a ton, but there are going to be a lot of games where they're going to have to work hard for three goals, and you just can't be putting yourself on the penalty kill that often. That's something I'd like to see the Red Wings rein in a little bit. Be fine if they took a good penalty in their own zone, if they're hemmed in or it's negating a scoring chance, but it was just a lazy play from Perron in the on the defensive side of the puck in the neutral zone, and you cannot be taking a stick penalty. No. At, in that position at that time of the game is just you don't expect a guy who's played as many games as Perron has in the NHL to take a penalty like that but we've seen a couple uh infractions from him this year that have kind of make you scratch your head a little bit yeah there's no there's no like discounting what Perron has done for this team and we've sung his praises last year he was such a force for Detroit but he's had a weird start to the season right mm-hmm. he's not been the Perron that we knew last year no despite how good the Red Wings offensive has been there's definitely been a few underachievers there and I would put him in that category. In any case, didn't matter overtime, which was a blast, obviously because of the result. But Lucas Raymond came through. Puck was turned over. Raymond stripped the puck or, or got the turnover. Went down. Made a nice pass to Confer that you thought was going to be shot. Confer was smart to hold it because Sorokin was in position or he saw that Raymond was able to get behind the defenseman that was playing between the two of them. Great pass back, automatic goal for Lucas Raymond. Red Wings win. And Lucas Raymond's Lucas Raymond's facial reactions this year as he scores goals have been hysterical. But that guy is just so excited to be winning hockey games, like just genuinely 45 out of 10 amped. Happy for him. He's had He's been doing the right things every game, and I know the production was like for the first few games, people were like, oh, it's a little bit lagging behind Debrinket and Larkin, but he's starting to catch up now and the points are coming and the results are coming. And that was a huge, huge goal for Raymond to score in terms of the, you know, the Red Wings as a team. Well, if the Red Wings want to get a wild card spot this year, uh, the Islanders are a team they need to take points away from. Yep. There are going to be a lot of teams in that battle and every point's important. But these are the three and four point games where you can really take a huge swing at the teams competing with you for those same spots. It was an important win because one, Detroit was on a three game losing skid after, you know, losing the opener, but then winning, what was it one to five games in a row? The Seattle one was a tough loss, but you still squeaked out a point. But Winnipeg and Boston, those didn't feel good. And that brought it to three L's in a row. And, you know, losing to Seattle and Winnipeg at home and then traveling to Boston and, Long Island, a lot of people would have said, yep, those are not schedule losses, but those are going to be tough wins to get. And, you know, the Boston game didn't do anything to inspire confidence. And through 40 minutes, Detroit was not in a position where you thought, yeah, they're going to walk away with two points here. So for them to be, like we said at the top of the segment, as gutsy as they were and and able to break through with such a substantial task, which was Elias Sorokin as a world-class goalie ahead of them, that's the kind of thing, you're right, Brad, those kind of points not only matter in terms of the standings and yeah, you want to collect as many as you can. That's the difference between a hockey team who can genuinely compete and make noise in the in the playoff race. That third period was a three point swing yep. in the standings. 
the Islanders could look like they were going to collect an easy two. They only walk away with one, and then Detroit takes two. It's it's not insignificant when that happens throughout. I don't care if it's October, November, February. It doesn't matter. Those are big swings in the standings. Well, they've got another one coming up in Florida, too, who are only four points back. And another team who, you know, they are in the Stanley Cup Finals last year, and I know they're now also without Oliver ekman Larson, uh, which we'll probably talk about. But they're a team who think they belong in the playoffs, too. So this upcoming game is just as big as the Islander game. Yeah, I fully agree. Like, the, the Florida game is a really good, I think, litmus test on how the Red Wings can handle things over the course of a season. That is a divisional rival, you're right. And, I mean, it's too early to say who's going to be in a divisional seed and who's going to be in the wild card race. But a lot of people would peg Florida as a potential wild card team. So if Detroit wants to unseat someone, they need to be, one, performing against their own division, and two, performing against teams who are going to be in that wild card spot. So, you know, they're back home now. So automatically, it's going to score, you know that. Can they have a full 60 minutes? Are they going to be able to, you know, relight up the the power play build on some momentum rather than kind of uh, let things turn back against them. You mentioned Ekman Larson, Evan, and that's relevant for Saturday's game against Boston, Winged Wheel Podcast Night. People might be looking at the previous Saturday Boston game in Boston thinking, oh boy, that's Detroit, you know, going against a tough foe again. Yeah, they're at home, but they did not look like the better team. Well, Boston's going to be without Charlie McAvoy, who laid a brutal hit. It was like drive-by headshot. That was nasty. I don't know a lot about, like, I don't want to say I was surprised to see that from Charlie McAvoy. Like, you don't watch a guy 82 games a year, but at the same, I'm surprised to see that from any player of his caliber. Like, that was just dumb. And it's not like he was targeting another star player or something like that. Like, no offense to Oliver Ekman Larson, but I think his better days are behind him. The wires clearly crossed because he had OEL in his sights for like four or five seconds, which is in the NHL a lifetime. And he just, Contact right to the head. And speaking of like NHL lifetimes, four games for a hit to the head is like 17 times as long as the average NHL suspension for a hit to the head. And to a star player, like you see them all the time reduce the amount of time a star player misses. So I, I thought the, the suspension was appropriate, first of all. I, yeah, for headshots, I always want it to be more severe, but I'm not going to complain on this one. They are getting very close to actually understanding the relevance and the impact of it. So, yeah. And it's the second one in a week. Uh, who was it? Uh, Rasmus Anderson from Calgary got suspended the same amount of th- games for the same thing. Yeah. And he had to miss the uh, Heritage Classic because of it too. So the NHL really isn't screwing around on these, which is finally good to see. So two important games. Florida, as Evan mentioned, is going to be wanting to win against Detroit. They have two games in hand against Detroit as of right now. And they're four points back. So you know, if they win this one, then they think, okay, we can leapfrog Detroit in the standings. Detroit in the second divisional seed at this time of recording on Wednesday evening. And then the Boston game, obviously, Boston's the team to beat right now, not just in the uh, Atlantic, but across the NHL. Vegas is the only the only other team who's really kind of, you know, rivaled what they've done to start the season. So uh, two important tests, but we're getting into the point now where the Red Wings are good enough or the expectation that they're good enough where every game is an important test. It's not like years past where you can pick out five, six games every few months and say, okay, these are the key ones where the results really matter. Like, no, all of them matter now. We're almost becoming a broken record. I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out what this team is all about. Like, we know they've got some upcoming stars. We know they've got some wily veterans. 
And it's trying to figure out where they stack up with the teams in their division and the other potential playoff teams. And I, I think that's why these games are more important right now because I don't want to say the jury's out on this team and what what's possible, but everybody seemed to have this team seventh in the division across the, the hockey media world. So I think a lot of people are still curious as to what this team truly is. Yeah, and, you know, removing Red Wings colored lenses here, there have been a lot of teams in the past in the NHL who have started this hot and settled back down into where they are. Like, would you predict that the Montreal Canadiens are going to keep a 5-2-2 two, and two pace over the course of the season? Well, I picked Cole Caulfield in our fantasy league, so yes. Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you've changed. You're you're fully on the Montreal has just skipped the rebuild. We. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my goodness. A worldly man. Anyhow, that is the Red Wings past game, their upcoming games. Let's talk more Red Wings, but let's do it with Prashanth Iyer, host of Expected by Whom good friend of the Winged Wheel podcast and our resident analytics expert, a great conversation with Prashanth. Enjoy. Prashanth, this is the first time since the season started that we had you on the Winged Wheel podcast. You've been so busy with Expected by Whom and and playing your uh, your life as Carmen Sandiego that we haven't, we haven't had you on WWP since the Red Wings dropped the puck. Yeah. You know, honestly, it's, we were just talking about that before the show. I think this is the longest I've gone between guest appearances, which is probably why your ratings have gone up. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And you were actually doling out some seriously like interesting facts as we were just like prepping uh, interview notes here. And I told you, I was like, hey, save this for your show. Save this for Expected by Whom. I don't know why you're giving us all the good content. This is absolutely like the dumpster for for hockey conversation. The good stuff lives on your show. Well, I mean, now that I'm coming on like the number two or three podcast and, you know, in North America for hockey, I got to I got to up my game and actually have decent facts. I can't just be making stuff up here now. Uh, well, at least someone's not doing it, folks. Uh, welcome back to the show. Prashanth Iyer, host of Expected by Whom and great, great friend of the Winged Wheel podcast, part of the you know, Winged Wheel podcast uh, family here. Uh, Prashant, I know it's been busy for you, but it's been some start to the season. How's everything been, uh, you know, watching the Red Wings start the season and for you and your family home? Well, I'll start with the Red Wings. I think this has been the most fun 10 games we've had to start a season in quite some time. Uh, you know, obviously we've had bright moments um, in early parts of the season. You know, I think back to the Anthony Mantha uh, four goal game uh, that he was able to to pull off. Uh, and he's always, all all of his hot starts were always great to to watch, and that kind of generated a lot of excitement. But I can't say that I've ever had this much excitement watching the team probably in the last I don't know ten years, nine years uh, through the first ten games. It's exciting, it's electric. The offense is fun, getting some timely saves from Billy Huso. So Red Wings are a lot of fun, and then that just makes family life uh, at home that much more fun. Now that I've got a two year old running around. Uh, and he has his own mini sticks net now. And so uh, good, he, good. he thinks it's absolutely hilarious to just fire the ball at me, which is which is uh, probably par for the course for what most folks would do if they were in the same room as me. Yeah, and he would be correct. That is actually very funny. So I maybe I'll let you guide the conversation here because I, there's so many different paths I want to go down based on the numbers I know you've pulled on the Red Wings. I guess this is like a uh, ad hoc Red Wings by the numbers segment, but um, I know you're... You have some uh, uh, key stats that you think would be interesting to talk about. So fire away. What's what's standing out for you the most right now with the Red Wings? Well, I think you first have to just start with the Red Wings record. You know they're six three and one, 
And, you know, obviously there's been a couple of disappointing losses in there. The loss against Winnipeg, you would have hoped they would have been able to pull out a point. Uh, you know, the, the, the loss against Boston where they sort of got outplayed and outclassed for the majority of the game. There's definitely some disappointment there. But if you just sort of step back and look at the 6-3-1 and record, that's the most points the Wings have pulled in the first 10 games of a season going back to the last time they made the playoffs, which was 2014-2015 when they opened 6-2-2. and You know, they've had six wins, uh, you know, before in 2016-2017, but the, the 13 points that they pulled is actually the most that they have pulled since pulling 14 back in 2014-2015. This is also the most the offense has ever scored. You know, in the first 10 games, again, going back uh, to the last time they were in the playoffs, it's the best goal differential the Wings have had at plus nine. Uh, this is the best the power play's ever been. The penalty kills over 80%, and the five-on-five expected goal score percentage uh, is just under 49% per evolving hockey, which is, again, one of the better marks the Wings have been able to put up going back to the last time they were in the playoffs. So you have to be excited about... Not only the results that the Wings are getting, but the way that they're getting those results and the depth scoring that's been able to contribute. It doesn't appear to be as much of a, you know, mirage or kind of false hope as it maybe has been in previous years when the Wings have been able to go, you know, 5-3-2 and two last year or 4-4-2 four, four the year before. Uh, this, this one feels like it has a little bit more weight behind it. So... You know, preseason folks between, you know, the Winged Wheel podcast, you, uh, Max, anyone else, the, the predictions for the Red Wings point range was anywhere from, I think, like 82. And, and I still think I was the most optimistic one with 91. None of those are, you know, decidedly playoff point totals. And I'm going to ask you a question that's going to make your statistician hair fall out. Through 10 games, have you seen enough where you would if you were allowed to, you know, edit your prediction, go back in time where you would increase that into potentially the playoff range or, or even at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I had them at 87 points if I'm remembering my preseason pr- prediction, right? I may revise it after 10 games up to 89 or 90, I think. I don't know that I've seen enough. Rather, let me put, let me, let me take a step back here. As a statistician, you know, thinker in the way that I like to approach this. I don't think I can revise it any more than that. It's 10 games. We've played 12% of the season. There's 88% of the season to go. You know, there's still, there's a lot of hockey left to be played. That being said, the wings have been more impressive than I was anticipating uh, without a doubt, particularly the movement on the power play, uh, a power play that I was not expecting to be this crisp, uh, given that the coach didn't really change and you've only, uh, you know, inserted Gostas Bear and, and, and Debrinket, two very, very talented players. But, you know, I thought it would certainly take some time for that to get clicking. And that, that hasn't been the case at all. So, you know, I might revise it up three-ish points to about 90, but I don't know that you can do all that much more at this point, given that you still have a power play that's operating at what would be an NHL record rate. Uh, we know that's not going to be sustainable. Um, and you've still got five-on-five five play that has room to improve uh, with that five-on-five five expected goals for being, you know, 48.3%. You'd like to see that number tilt towards 50 uh, or even above 50 before you feel more confident that the Wings are going to carry play night in and night out. But definitely a really impressive 10 games. Something that I think, you know, definitely is solid and it's real and, and not to 
to diminish anything that the Red Wings have accomplished or attribute their success to luck. I'm not doing that at all. But something that's felt the most substantial to me is Dylan Larkin specifically. Like the way he's elevated his play. And yes, that's because he has Goss to spare on the power play and to break it to pass to on his top line. But it just seems like he as an individual player is is still taking step after step after step year over year. And you watch the game, you 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 know deploy the so-called eye test and you see that. And then you actually said in our group chat the other day, by some numbers, he is among the best players in the league to start the season. Yeah, when you look at Dom Lucision's game score model uh, that ultimately factors into his game score value added or GSVA that you see, um, you know, Dylan Larkin, after I think through eight games or nine games, was the you know the number two player in the NHL by average game score per game, which attempts to measure, you know, who had the best game um, because it factors in the box score stats, it factors in how the play was tilted at five on five, and he's really been the engine for this Red Wings team, and I I think that that had to be the case, you know, prior to the season. Uh, I had a radio show out in Grand Rapids ask me if if you were going to be wrong, what was going to be the reason you were wrong? And the, what I ended up saying was Dylan Larkin and Alex Dabrinkit play at an elite level. And that's exactly what you've seen so far. And Dylan Larkin's that engine that's driving this team, both on the power play with his you know ability to play in the slot, move the puck. Uh, retrieve those pucks uh, that that are loose and then ultimately have those zone entries. And then at five on five, he's making stuff happen out of nothing. Um, he's been so good capitalizing on chances uh, in transition. Um, you know, he creates opportunities with his speed and he's not just staying wide. He's finding ways to attack the middle of the ice, finding ways uh, to preserve possession. And then to round out his game, the guy's playing a lot on the on the penalty kill. He's doing absolutely everything for the Detroit Red Wings right now. He's in the prime of his career and he's putting up what appears to be, you know, the best statistical season he's ever had. Let's talk about his new line mate, his friend, uh, returning to his hometown team. I shouldn't say returning. He's for the first time ever playing for his hometown team. Uh, Alex Dabrinkit. Obviously, an electric start at points, leading the league in goal scoring, still up there um, in scoring and points measures uh, across the NHL. How has his presence changed the Red Wings' offense fundamentally, and, and what are the uh, the numbers behind his his impact for Detroit? Yeah, I think if you were to ask anybody, what's been the number one thing missing from the Red Wings over the last few years? Uh, it's been an elite finishing talent, someone who can just convert the chances. This is what everybody wanted Philip Zadina to be. This is what everybody wanted uh, to see from Lucas Raymond, just this elite sniper that could, you know, bury chances whenever they were given. That's Alex Dabrinkit, and that's the value he brings. He's consistently, over the course of his career, finished chances at a higher rate uh, than just about any other player. He's been in the top 3 or 4% over the course of his career, and that's been no different uh, you know, thus far, he's obviously, you know, got the nine goals already, um, you know, well on his way to a monster goal scoring season. But it's it's sort of how he converts those chances. He's finishing his chances well above expected. You know, a lot of people like to say, OK, here's what a player's expected goals should be, which is an attempt to measure the quality of chances uh, that a player is getting and then looking at their actual goals and saying whether or not it's sustainable the fact of the matter is most of those expected goals models are based off of an average shooter. They're not factoring in the talent of the shooter taking those shots. 
And a guy that's been able to consistently convert at a rate higher than expected is Debrinkit, and he's doing that absolutely uh, thus far. And I think that opens up a lot of space for for Dylan Larkin to move. You have to shadow uh, Debrinkit on the power play. You have to be aware of where he's at on the rush. It gives a defender an extra you know element to think about, which in Dylan Larkin's mind, he just needs an extra step. And so you give him that, and it's allowed him to create a lot more opportunities for the both of them. And ultimately, Dabrinkat has not disappointed in that space. All right, I'd be remiss if I didn't jump to the defense and allow you to uh, continue your very strong political campaign uh, for Jake Wallman and the Norris Trophy. So let's let's jump to defense, and let's start with uh, Jake Wallman. What are you seeing this season compared to his rise uh, from last season? I mean... Let's, you know, we, we need to be, let's, let's make sure everybody's on board the train here. This is the Jake Wallman for Norris campaign. Jake Wallman, you know, when he came over in that trade, a lot of people were going, who's Jake Wallman? Myself included. Uh, and then I had a, a very interesting conversation with Corey Schneider back, back in the day. And he goes, Wallman's one of the most impressive players we've ever seen on the microstats side. You know, the way he played in transition, the way he was able to deny chances against his entry defense, all of these things, he was like, this is a guy who has a potential to shine. And so I'm shouting out Corey for that because while everybody's wondering who who Jake Wallman was, Corey was like, I think this guy profiles as a guy who could be a stud. Last year was the first time Wallman really got that chance. He had come back from the shoulder injury uh, that, that that knocked him out in his first season in Detroit. Got to move all the way up to playing with Mo Sider starting in December. And then he was one of the best defensemen in the league as measured by expected goals above replacement, as measured by game score. Whatever metric he wanted to utilize, he was an elite shot su- uh, suppressor and ultimately a guy that took to play in his team's favor. Now, you have to then think, is that a flash in the pan? Was that a really good four months? Uh And thus far this season, it is not just a really good four months. He has absolutely continued. And I think the most impressive part about Wallman this year is it is far more noticeable to the eye. You are seeing him everywhere. He is disrupting plays in, uh, you know, on the rush. He is knocking down uh, zone entries. He is preventing zone exits. His skating puts him, you know, in great position to make all of these plays where he can skate the puck out of his zone, he can pass the puck out, he tends to make very smart plays. He has had a couple of boneheaded turnovers this year, uh, but for the most part, he's played an absolutely phenomenal game. And that's why, you know, you again go to pull up the metrics and you start to take a look at who are the top leaders and expected goals above replacement for a defenseman. There's Jake Wallman in the top 10 once again. And so he's really profiling as a guy that could be that elite second you know, defenseman for Detroit uh, next to Mo Sider and sort of, you know, makes you wonder if you've got these two elite guys, do you, would you potentially benefit from splitting them up and seeing if you can spread the wealth the same way that Boston can roll out Hampus Lindholm and Charlie McAvoy for 50 minutes or the same way that Pittsburgh can roll out Chris Letang and Eric Carlson for 50 minutes? Uh, I'm wondering, you know, to an extent, are you going to get uh, an element of that if you were to have a Wallman and Cider on the ice for, you know, 83% of the game. And just to skip past Cider for a second here, my brain is is filling in the blanks. And are you saying, you know, bring up Simon Edvinson and see if you can't use one of those two talented guys to 
really help carry some of the uh, the weight in his transition to the NHL and see if you can't bring him up to being a bona fide top four defenseman? Yeah, I I completely agree. I think if you were to you know take Simon Edmondson, uh, you know he's a he's a left shot, and so you potentially put him with Mo Sider and you let Jake Wallman you know, play with Gostas Bear, who's very comfortable playing on the right side, or you let him play, uh, you know, with another right shot defenseman, you know, on Detroit, whether it's uh, Justin Hall or, or, or Ben Sherratt. Uh, I think Wellman has the potential to elevate any pairing he's on. I think you're seeing that he is a driver. He is not a passenger. He is an engine uh, that can potentially carry another partner. And I do think it'd be a lot of fun to see a top four of Sider and Edvinson where you have two very dynamic, skilled, uh, big defensemen that can move the puck with their feet, that can move it, uh, you know, via pass, and that have very good offensive IQs. And then you have a second pairing that follows up with Jake Wallman and Shane Gostisbury. Now you've got a really dynamic uh, top four. And so, uh, to me, that's the natural end game for the Red Wings here. And that's an end game I would expect to see in the next couple of months because you're you're basically finding that Outside of those top four uh, for Detroit right now, which the top four has really been, you know, Cider, uh, Wallman, Sherratt, and Gostas Bear, you're not getting – no one has taken uh, kind of a stranglehold of any of the remaining two defense spots. And so if you're going to continue to sit one of those guys in the box and, you know, sit 2.3 million or 3 million in the box – or sorry, I should say in the press box every time – why not give a guy like Simon Edmondson a, ch- a shot to, to grab that job? Because if you do and he grabs that job and takes off, you've got really you've got a really dynamic top four. So you're saying the 11 forward, 7 defense configuration is what you would like to see sometime soon? I mean, at this point, if you're going to bring Edmondson up, I think you could maybe start like that. But I'd like to mm-hmm. see them eventually go 12 and 6. And, you know, you're going to have to jettison a couple of these guys. Uh, because if no one's going to take a stranglehold on that spot, give Edmondson a shot in an 11 and seven role, you know, have somebody scratched, you know, or potentially when the first injury happens on the back end that keeps somebody out for a while, call him up, run 11 and seven, let him get his chance to, to grab the job. And if he grabs the job, then you have your decision made where you need to find, uh, you know, a trade partner to get one of these guys out to create that space for Edmondson. Okay. And to jump back to cider, you know, it's it's really funny. The conversations around Cider right now are a little bit testy. I mean, I'm going to talk about this on the main show too, but I find that um, you know, by no means is anyone saying Cider's doing bad. We saw the, the pass that he made uh, to, uh, was it Comfer, who was, yes. I think Sean posted a, a screenshot. When he made that pass, Comfer was completely off screen. That's how unreal that look was from Cider. So he's still doing most Cider things. And I think offensively he is, you know, completely up to speed. But we're seeing some indecisiveness on the defensive side of his game, which uh, seems to coincide with the starts of seasons for Mosider. And I want to qualify all of this by saying he's still so young. And take any dominant defenseman, look at Victor Hedman, look at Rasmus Dahlin, blah, blah, blah. Early on in their careers, they had stretches where people were questioning whether they were even ever going to be elite. Sider is well beyond that now. So so to call out small things like this is not to to disparage Mosider. But we're seeing some defensive indecisiveness, some positioning, some uh, breakout decision kind of errors where we know he can do a lot more. Uh, and he has been and will be a lot better than that. But what would you attribute to um, the missteps so far from Sider, the small ones defensively? 
Yeah, that's a that's kind of a great way to lay it out. Um, I think, you know, most of the errors that you're seeing from Mo is just exactly what you said, indecisiveness and transition. And, you know, part of me wonders if it's related to changes in system. Part of me wonders if there's been tweaks, you know, with the different tweaks in the rosters, uh, if, if there's a little bit of an adjustment there. He is playing with his same defense partner, so it isn't a change in defense partner like it was from the year prior, um, you know, when he went from playing with Danny Zekaiser to playing with Ben Sherratt, and you have to get a little bit of an adjustment period there. Again, all of that being said, I think the reason the conversation has been sort of testy and people have or have these frustrations because of what we saw as a rookie. What you you know where his game can be. That's the thing. It's not like this is a guy that had a high pedigree that's never hit it, and you're just frustrated because you think he's potentially a bust. It's it's no. It's like you've seen this game from him before. You've seen it at the NHL level. You saw it as a rookie. And you're just wanting him to find that consistency to get back there. But I think we have to all remember there's been a lot of changes to the Redmonds coaching staff, to his defense partners, to the roster turnover, to the system, that there's going to be an adjustment period for a guy that is 22 years old. And so even though I've said that I haven't been as impressed with his play this year, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be impressed by Mo Sider. I absolutely think he figures this out. And whether it's just him finding the right decisions to pinch, the right times to attack, the right times to fall back, I think that's that's just what he's going to have to work out this year. And it's okay. You know, you brought up Rasmus Dahlin. Last year was the first year we saw elite Rasmus Dahlin. And, and that took several years because Dahlin was a 20, what, 2018 draft pick. And so... You know, this that took some time to, to, to get here. And Mo Sider is not going to be any different. He's going to be a guy that's going to find his way. He's going to have his ups and downs. He's still 22. But at the end of the day, we have seen that talent at the NHL level. And I think that's just what you want to see come back. And so it'll be just finding the consistency and transition. But overall, the skill is there. The IQ is there. The skating is there. All the tools are there. You just, you just got to get it all put together, wrapped in a, in a nice little package. And for anyone who like is vehemently disagreeing with this and saying, how are you, you know, talking about anything Moe Sider is doing wrong, trust when I say that everyone sees this and says, wow, Moe Sider having, you know, not his best start and still doing what he's doing on the ice is a, <laughs> a blessing to the Red Wings and a, a privilege the team hasn't had for quite some time during a, a rough rebuild, so... Yeah, I mean, when you have when you haven't had your stars playing recently or playing to the the highest of their potential, it's usually a recipe for disaster. But you know, I think the 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 saving grace to Mo's game is as we're getting through these ten games, I'd say two of the last four games from Cider have been his best two games of the season, and arguably the mm-hmm. two games you know where he was the best defender for Detroit. Uh, on the ice. So I think he's already starting to figure it out. I don't think this will be anything like last season where there's a couple of months where he was struggling to put it together before getting paired up with Wallman. I think this is a very short, um, you know, rough patch for him, if you will. And, and he's, he's already on his way to figuring it out. And then one last player I want to talk about here is, and that's just because of the lofty expectations or I should say pressure that is on his shoulders coming into the season is Lucas Raymond. Um, a lot of people, myself included, said as uh, Raymond goes, the Red Wings will go this season because of the increased need for offense and how can he elevate his game. 
So what would you make of uh, Lucas Raymond's start? And I'm saying this, you know, we're recording and the last goal that was scored for the Red Wings was Lucas Raymond's OT winner. So, yeah, you know, that definitely a huge amount of pressure and it's a contract year for Lucas Raymond. And this is a big year because, uh, you know, his play is going to dictate, are you bridging him or is he an eight year fixture in Detroit? And that's so, you know, there's already a lot of pressure coming in. And last season, you saw that one of the, the common themes with Lucas Raymond was he would get knocked off the puck. Uh, he wasn't able to be physical enough to, uh, you know, maintain possession, to win pucks back. And that was the kind of stuff you saw in the SHL. He did so well. He was a relentless forechecker. He was uh, always so strong on the puck, was always able to get it. But I think the physicality of the NHL and the size of some of these guys really uh, challenged him a bit. And so I think this offseason, you saw him put in the work. He is stronger. He is winning board battles. He is right back to being that relentless forechecker. I don't have these numbers in front of me because these are not numbers that are publicly available. But if I had to guess which Red Wings player has won the puck back the most in the offensive zone, I would guess Lucas Raymond over any other player because I think he is forced forced the most offensive zone turnovers of any Red Wings player here, where he's able to pick a defender's pocket, get the puck back, and then immediately get some meaningful possession going. And so he has been the perfect complement to Dylan Larkin and Alex Dabrinkit, because now you've got a guy that functions as the puck retriever in Lucas Raymond. He is getting the puck, but this is an elite puck retriever. He's winning pucks back. He's getting the puck uh, with a good first pass up to the guy that can drive the line, being Dylan Larkin. And then you've got an elite sniper in Alex Dabrinkit on the other side. And I think that's been the big reason this line's been so successful is all three guys are contributing in their roles. And it's really important to make sure that we don't lose sight of Lucas Raymond's role in his ability to win these pucks back, maintain possession, and then get the puck up to those guys to actually go make plays and so he's he's been absolutely tremendous this season. Well, I think we could talk pretty much all day uh, about the different Red Wings storylines. We didn't even do Shane Goss' spare today, but... We can talk about Joe Valeno. We didn't even talk about Joe... Actually, we should do Joe Valeno. We got to talk about Joe Valeno because this guy has been money. He's been absolutely money. He's another guy that ha- was in, coming into a big year. It's a contract year. Came off of a rough summer that saw him you know, get tossed out of a tournament because of the stomping incident uh, with his skate. And so he was another guy that really was in a show me year. And he's come out and been absolutely phenomenal. He is really the only consistent beacon of offense in the bottom six right now. We talked about the Red Wings depth earlier. They've gotten goals from, you know, a bunch of different guys. But the only guy that's really been contributing consistently in that bottom six has been Joe Valeno. And you can see it it, he's winning over the coaches. They're getting him out there in late game situations. He's been better in every facet of the game. The way that he is shooting the puck, his shot looks a lot better. He's been uh, exceptional in the faceoff circle this year after previously struggling. Uh, he's been great in transition on defense. He's been great in every aspect of the game. Like There is not a bad thing I can say about Joe Valeno's game. And the nice thing about it is you're seeing it play out in the stats. You know, whether you look at game score, whether you looked at expected goals above replacement, we can we'll, we use expected goals above replacement for the purposes of this conversation. He's number two on the Red Wings in expected goals above replacement behind Alex Brinkett. 
Like that's that's incredible. Like that's still ahead of uh you know, that's still ahead of Jake Wallman, which I have to say is an amazing, amazing feat for any player. But Future to have Norris a bottom, Trophy winner. Right, right. But to have a bottom six player uh be able to be, you know, your second best player in t- in terms of total expected goals above replacement, not just per minute, but in total expected goals above replacement, this is a guy that's really giving you a lot. And so this is the next step you had to see from him. He's giving it to you. And I, I hope this continues because if it does, now you've got a bona fide, you know, 20 goal scorer that can potentially be in that bottom six, the same way that Ottawa was hoping to have that with Shane Pinto. Uh, that's what Joe Valeno can be. And just for some, uh, for some simpleton stats here, Joe Valeno's goal totals in 2021-2022, eight goals in 66 games. Last season, nine goals in 81 games, so almost a full season. Uh, this season, through 10 games, he already has five goals. So Yeah, he's almost a third of the way to his career goal total. Yeah, uh, like great, great start for Joe Valeno. And I, I like age isn't everything. Of course, you're going to have veteran players who are going to contribute, and you have to cycle those out. But if Detroit is able to find a mainstay in their bottom six who is an impact player, not every impact player can be in the top six. A mainstay who's 23 years old and has his best years ahead of him, that is a massive win for, yeah, for the rebuild. I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. Like We've been talking about how are the Red Wings going to be this playoff contender? And we, we have to talk about it in the context of this is a team that's not getting draft luck. That's, that's the way almost all of these uh, you know rebuilds have gone. Uh, the successful ones have ultimately resulted in multiple top three picks. Well, that's never going to be Detroit. Detroit's not going to get that unless they win a lottery and are, you know, ranked uh, 13th or or better uh, where they're able to move up to 10 spots. So how do you actually do that? You have to have your picks outside of that hit and you have to have guys that you weren't expecting to develop in a certain fashion develop into that. I don't think anybody was expecting Joe Boleno to give you this, you know, at this point, you know, in his career, he's a 2018 draft pick. It had been five years out. You know, we were sort of thinking this is what it is. But no, all of a sudden he's turned his game around and this is a bright spot that you can build around in that bottom six. And so you get a couple more of these bright spots that come out of nowhere, whether it's Carter Mazur, you know, being a later round pick that's able to develop. It's Jonathan Bergren as a second round pick, being able to continue his success and work his way back up. You know, that's the kind of uh, things you're going to need to have happen as uh, as a Red Wings fan if you want to see this team ultimately be that playoff contenders. You're going to have to have those things hit, and then you're going to have to supplement it with trades and through free agency, which is a non-traditional way to do this, but a way that can it can still be done. Well, I think our next step is to see where the Red Wings are at at about Thanksgiving, because that's the uh, arbitrary benchmark that's used for will his team make the playoffs. And then we can see how much of this know really strong start is going to solidify and be a foundation for the team but uh, for now let's wrap up the hockey talk and take just a minute here Prashant something you and I work on a lot in the offseason besides torturing Max in the group chat is uh, wings money on the board in our uh, efforts to raise money for the Jamie Daniels Foundation we are looking to raise $50,000 this year for them I think lifetime total contributions across Wings Money on the Board, Wing Wheel Podcast Nights, etc. Your very generous donations have surpassed a hundred grand. So uh, talk to the audience a little bit about what Wings Money on the Board is and what we're looking to do. Yeah, so so Wings Money on the Board is a season-long initiative that basically aims to raise money for the Jamie Daniels Foundation, a foundation that 
works to combat substance use disorder in in Southeast Michigan and really across the state now as they're doing more and more work. Uh, and and so with Wings Money on the board, you sign up uh, through our Google form. If you have any trouble finding it, you can go to the Wing World podcast site. It's it's available up there. And on that form, you can make a pledge. You can say, I would like to donate X amount of money for every Moritz Cider hit, or I would like to donate X amount of money for every Alex to bring at goal, or you can create your own pledge. We have a few that you that are common that people can choose from, or if you want to create your own, and some people get really, really creative with these, like you know, every uh, you know, every time Billy Huso makes a save plus every Moritz Cider hit plus something along those lines, people will make a donation. And so get as creative as you want. But at the end of the day, our goal is to raise money here for the Jamie Daniels Foundation. And so sign up on Wings Money on the board. We have a lot of uh, prizes that we like to do throughout the year. We just did our first uh, kind of big game of the season uh, against Ottawa, where we were able to give away an Alex DeBrincat jersey, a Wingwheel Podcast quarter zip, and then three six-month subscriptions to Sean Shapiro's Shaps. Shap Shots blog. That is a tongue twister to say. Uh, and so stay tuned for more of those throughout the year uh, as we work our way towards 50,000. All right, folks, this has been Prashant Iyer, host of Expected by Whom. Follow him, follow the show, give this show a listen. Uh, the better content is there. Their interviews are phenomenal, blows what we do out of the water. So uh, really, really love what they're doing. And Prashant, as always, thanks for joining us, man. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Prashanth for taking over while Evan convinced me that he was colorblind during the uh, the downtime as we spliced in that interview. But no, great conversation with Prashanth Iyer to talk all things Red Wings. As you can see, there's a lot to be optimistic about with this team and a lot to genuinely look forward to as we approach that, you know, arbitrary but very real Thanksgiving cutoff to see if this Detroit team is actually a serious playoff contender. Let's jump over to the rest of the NHL. Three different major news points with the Ottawa Senators. When it rains, it pours, then it hails, and then it tornadoes on your house, and then it floods, and then it wildfires, it seems. Ottawa cannot stop getting beat down by the hockey gods. The weird thing is, is I'm not even sure I... Not even sure I know the three you're talking about, because I'm not even convinced that it's only three. Yeah, it keeps piling on. So first and foremost, the rumors that were floating around recently, which seemed kind of wild, came to fruition. In 2021, in July 2021, the Ottawa Senators traded Evgeny Dodonov to the Golden Knights. And then the Golden Knights, a year later, in March of 2022, thought they had traded Dodonov to the Ducks in a, a part of a bigger trade. But after that trade was announced, it was... Uh, determined that Dodonov's trade protection rights weren't honored and the trade was nixed. Dodonov stayed with the Golden Knights. The whole saga has been told time and time again. It was this big, ugly thing. You know, a lot of accusations were levied and thrown towards Vegas, and uh, it did kind of creep back towards Ottawa, but everyone was saying, hey, Vegas really screwed up here, and they tried to trade a player who they weren't allowed to trade. And really, it was Dodonov's agent who saved the whole thing from going through when it shouldn't have. Now, fast forward another year, we're in 2023, November 2023, so a lot of time has passed, and it turns out, you know, without getting into all the details, which would take probably another hour podcast, it turns out Dodonov had trade protection that required the submission of a trade list, 
And Ottawa did not communicate as such with Vegas when they traded him. So there are certain rules about if you submit a trade list by a certain recurring interval or a certain time, it carries over to the next team, et cetera, et cetera. All the specific parameters are dependent on the trade protection per the contract. But essentially, Ottawa did not communicate this with Vegas. Vegas was, you know, completely ignorant to it through, I don't want to say no fault of their own, but kind of no fault of their own. And then they got in the mess with the the supposed trade with the Ducks that fell through. Why is this happening all this time later where Ottawa was found to be guilty? Well, Vegas has a reputation across the NHL of being really harsh with their players and ruthless and cutthroat. And they were pissed off that they were getting blamed for something that wasn't their fault this time. And I kind of respect that and don't blame them at all. They have nothing to gain from this except for reputational you know, advantage. But now the Ottawa Senators are forfeiting a first round pick. That's wild. That is me. a massive like that for something two years ago. I don't even know how they come to the determination of the penalty for such things. I understand. And first of all, I'm I'm of the same mind or I'm two, of two different minds. I think it's harsh, but I think it's right because you cannot mess around with like operational, like league constitutional stuff like this. Like it ruins the integrity of the league when you mess with stuff like this. Whether or not Ottawa did it maliciously or through negligence, you kind of have to treat it the same because – if you don't have your ducks in a row, look at the knock-on effects. How many teams and players and picks, whatever, were involved with this? You can't unscrew this. So you have to punish teams hard to make sure that they know that you cannot mess up this bad. Arizona got charged a first-round pick and more for working out players before the draft. And some people might say, oh, that's just you know some dinners and some workouts. No, 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 no. If you're getting that much of an advantage or any advantage at all that breaks you know, the league's rules, you need to get such a harsh punishment that you never think about doing it again. That's the kind of penalty that actually makes a difference. There needs to be an overhaul of how these clauses are submitted and tracked because the fact that one GM can just misrepresent or not even be aware that one of their players has this in their contract and the other team can receive a player under such uh, pretenses is a joke to me. Well, you're right, and the good thing is that when this happened last year, the NHL did kind of say, okay, now is the time for a central registry of clauses and things like that. So that it's good, and this whole retroactive penalty is just like them cleaning up this situation. So Ottawa has to forfeit, by the language, it says one of its first-round picks in either 2024, 2025, or 2026 Essentially, they have 24 hours after each respective year's draft lottery, if they hadn't given up the year prior, to decide whether they're giving up that year's first-round pick. So my understanding is that doesn't involve the other picks that they own, including Detroit's from the Debrinka trade. They have to give up one of their picks. So they have three years to do this. So is it the harshest way to to strip a first-round pick? No, but it's still a first-round pick. Yeah, it's and again, I like your point about it has to be a deterrent because that's the whole point of levying punishments. I'd be remiss, and I know a million people pointed it out on Twitter, that the NHL's hands aren't clean in this, because, you know, everybody's beat it to death, and I'm not going to go on a long tirade about it, because everybody's thinking the same thing. It's a stiff punishment. It's understandable. Same with the Coyotes. It's stiff. It's understandable. And yet we're sitting here watching Connor Bedard on the Chicago Blackhawks. Yeah, yeah. 10 years covering up a sexual abuse by a coach and they they don't even get a pick stripped. It's 
I know it's arbitrary and entirely different circumstances, but if you told me Arizona got a first strip for what they did, Ottawa got a first strip, I would have asked if Chicago would have a first round pick in the next five years. And what do they call it in the co- in college sports when they get basically stripped of all their recruiting rights? There's like a very specific term for it. I know the what they refer to the infractions as are violations. Yeah, but they basically call it like the death penalty or something in terms of like this team can't recruit for like the next X years and it basically like cripples their program. Like that's sort of the level we're talking about. Chicago should have been penalized. And I know we've talked about this at length in a lot of episodes. So yes, how they come up with these decisions and these penalties, I would love to know. And I'm sure Michael Andlauer would as well. (laughs) Oh man. I, okay. Listen, we know why we don't know why, but you can't tell me it's a coincidence that two of the smallest markets in the NHL get the first round pick and one of the biggest doesn't. Hey, that a, can't be a coincidence. Hey, NHL owners have different size sticks to be whacking around. That's it's, what it is. It's it's definitely something like that. And one is there an original six team involved in this conversation? The uh, Steve Dangle said something today, which I thought was poignant. And I'll repeat, which is that there's not really a punishment in light of, you know, what happened in Chicago. There's not really a punishment that could have been, you know, put forward that would have made anything feel okay, of course. But I don't see why, and we're not going to hang on this, but I don't see why the same principle that's being applied to Arizona and Ottawa can't also apply here, which is that even if it feels, you know, disproportionately large or because so much time has passed or whatever, you have to make it so that these organizations, the GM's office and and all of the people who are paid, you know, decent money to work on this stuff, have the fear of the hockey gods in them while they're working on this to make sure that they get it right. And it's not just, you know, trades and clauses and things. It's it's treating your employees like people. So that that's that. Now, I do agree, actually, with both of you. I think Chicago had a bigger stick. And obviously way more influence and power in this league. Like imagine this happened in Boston. I don't think anything would have happened to them because of how much control that Jeremy Jacobs and now his his family have over the league. Arizona, nothing in terms of uh, ownership power. Ottawa, same thing. Not according to Michael Anlauer. Well, Michael Anlauer has been a, was a, a fun, fiery breath of fresh air. But first, Pierre Dorian was let go by the team. That was the next announcement that came. There were rumors that Dorian's uh, seat was hot. Pretty much anytime a new owner comes in, that's going to be the case. You know, Michael Lauer loves uh, Steos, who he knows from his days in uh, with Hamilton in the OHL. And he brought him over from Ottawa and was just, you know, in an exec position. And some people thought, well, if and when Pierre Dorian does go, is this going to be Steve Steos' job? Well, now that is, he's the interim GM. Uh, there was a quote actually that was very funny. Uh, I think it was from Down Goes Brown, says the Steve Steos search for a new GM in Ottawa feels about as suspenseful as the Cal Dubas search for a new GM in Pittsburgh. (laughs) And that's the impression I get that it's going in that direction. But yeah, Pierre Dorian uh, was let go. The way Ann Lauer phrased it was, it was a mutual parting of ways, but he also said, I told Pierre Dorian that this was avoidable and that the the cost had to be no less than his job and Pierre agreed. They, They fired him. And that is the end of hot Pierre summer, as it were. So... Canadian markets never fail to entertain in terms of how batshit they are. And Pierre Dorian's the latest GM to uh, to kind of go by the wayside. It's amazing when one of the more 
functional organizations in Canada early in the season seems to be Vancouver. Uh, I need you guys to know how crazy that statement is. That statement is something (laughs) because the entire province of Alberta is up in flames. Nobody understands why Winnipeg doesn't fully suck right now. Toronto doesn't have a bad record and their fan base is melting down. And somehow the Montreal Canadiens are battling for first place in the Atlantic. It's all backwards. Uh, Nothing makes sense. Yeah. And then there's and then there's Ottawa. Well, DJ Smith is clearly in the crosshairs now. There's a what I can what I can gather is Ottawa. I don't think Ottawa will be giving up this year's first round pick. <laughs> Look, we've seen teams turn around from from worse positions, and I don't think Ottawa is a bad team as they're composed. Like, no, if Detroit can be performing this well, Ottawa can be performing this well by the players they have on the roster, plain and simple. But yeah, I I agree with you. If DJ Smith, if they continue to slide. I do think they'll do the whole breath of fresh air coach switcheroo to try to salvage the season. When you bring in a new GM, whether it be Steve Sayos or whoever. Maybe you, the reader. Maybe even you. Yeah. The clock is ticking on a coach at that point. Like they always like to bring in their own guy and, and, and leave their own mark on and build the identity of the team. So I would imagine DJ Smith is now the new owner of the hot seat, but I guess time will tell. Also, you know, for all the jokes we make, I think Pierre Dorian has had a pretty, you know, wild ride as a GM. I think he's made some downright terrible moves. I think he's made some unbelievably good moves that are sorely underrated. I think once, you know, Eugene Melnick uh, passed away and Pierre Dorian no longer had Eugene Melnick's thumb on the team, he was able to do a little bit more and, uh, make some more good moves, but plain and simple, you can't make this mistake and keep your job in the NHL. Like that is, you can't come back from that. No. I, I think he'll probably find work in the NHL again. He's pretty well respected, pretty well connected guys. You'll run into him in a hallway once in a while. That's that's well and good, but uh, you can't cost your team a first round pick. And think of the implications. Ottawa's competing with Buffalo, Detroit, soon to be Montreal to, to take over the next era of Atlantic Division bonafide teams. A first round pick is no joke. Their their best bet is that they have an unbelievable season and that pick is in like the twenties. And now they have to give up a first pick. And that's I, I tweeted this out, but it's a non-zero leg up for the teams around them. Is it gonna it does it make or break a rebuild? No. Like is Tyler Boucher gonna be anything for them? If not, and I hate to pick on the guy, I don't actually know whether he's gonna be anything for them. But let's say you you have a first round pick that's a waste, then that's no different than losing a first, but you have to at least take the shot. Losing a first-round pick is uh, unforgivable. And unfortunately, losing his job was what had to happen. Michael Ann Lauer's got to be thrilled. Because it gives him an excuse. Through. So you know that uh, meme, that gift that flows around the internet from Community where uh, Donald Glover walks into the room holding pizza boxes and everything's on fire? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Michael Ann Lauer and the Ottawa Senators. Yeah. Except the NHL told him everything was okay and there wasn't actually a fire. Yeah, immediately before he paid money to open that door. Yeah, so that's the third big story. He is... actually bought this uh, this team off Kijiji, so it's buyer beware. <laughs> <laughs> hey, in today's market, you cannot ask for an inspection before you go in. You just that's have right. to you have to buy it blind. Yep, no re- no restrictions on that offer. Yeah. That's the that's the third news story, which is Michael Ann Lauer had a press conference wherein uh, he said the NHL did not advise him of either investigation re- relating to the Dodonov forfeited pick or the Shane Pinto investigation, both of which notoriously were surprises. Uh, he also said 
he's taken some shots here. He said, you look at a young man like Shane Pinto who's making millions of dollars and representing the community, but he's 21 years old. Wayne Gretzky goes on MGM and talks about betting. Think about being injured, having time on your hands in a cell phone. I understand the point he's making here. I don't know if it was the if most well advised. If it was point. good radio, I would give the slowest clap right now. Like the what's that? The remember the the whiskey commercial where the guys start clapping? <laughs> yeah. That's me right now because he is clearly pissed off. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna when you go through his points, a couple of the ones he made were bad and dumb. His overall vibe is on point and I respect it deeply. This is one of the comments he made that's stupid though, because he's objectively right and saying what we're all thinking, but he's one of the 32 guys pocketing all the betting money. Well, yeah, that's why you could say it. <laughs> Here, here's what's happening. I think Michael Anlauer is making this noise because this is where he can earn back any kind of value in the battlefield. He is not going to sue the NHL. He is a new owner that would be, you know how the ownership group works in the NHL, and if you don't, it is incredibly insular. They will keep people out who have billions and billions and billions of dollars to inject in the league just because they don't like them. See Jim Basile. Yeah, it is incredibly hard to break in. He is not going to poison his ownership in the league and basically be pushed to the corner of every discussion in the room just, not I don't want to say just because of this, but because of this. He's not going to light the room on fire. But if what he does do is make a stink about how unfair this is, he's going to get maybe a little bit of uh, lighter or more favorable treatment in the future. Don't forget, Michael Landlauer was the NHL's golden boy in the Ottawa sales situation. They had this entire farce of celebrities and, you know, conglomerates of people who had nothing to do with hockey and this entire public messy affair. Michael Landlauer, minority owner of Montreal Canadiens, embedded in hockey, well known to the NHL, was one of their guys, so to speak. They're going to want to make this right for him. I'm impressed that they were able to actually levy the kind of, you know, punishment that they needed to as a deterrent, as Brad said, to one of their own. They're going to want to make this right for him. He makes a stink in public. He makes it known that he's upset about this. It riles up the fan base. It galvanizes support for the senators. And it makes sure down the road the NHL knows that they're going to have to, you know, tilt something in his favor in some way. What that is, I don't know, but basically the NH, he, he's making it so the NHL now owes him one. It's political theater. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's He knows how dejected his fan base is right now. Mm -hmm. They are off to a slow start. They've had every controversy in the world in the last couple months. He's looking at future dollars right now. Every fan that checks out is money out of his pocket, and he's kind of taking this us against the world approach right now, which again, even though some of his individual statements themselves, like I just mentioned the last one, are kind of dumb, he doesn't care about what he's actually saying because he just wants his fan base to hop on board and go, they're screwing us. It's us against the world. We're going to rally. And it's from a business standpoint, kind of genius. He said a lot of we as well in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, how sometimes fans say we. So I think fans are going to resonate a lot in the messages that he was trying to get across and sharing that sentiment. So I I absolutely loved the press conference that was held today. Oh, great entertainment. And I mean, you're going to have a hard time getting anything positive out of, out of a sense fan right now, but you're both right. Like it is going to absolutely rally support. And it's it's different from what the sense are used to. They're used to basically their ownership telling them that they're losing because of the fans or whatever stupid thing that Eugene Melnick said that day. So, 
it's hard to come out of that situation losing a first round pick with any positives and Ann Lauer worked hard to make sure that they got what they could. Now he did say things like, you know, uh, maybe they didn't want to disrupt the sale to make sure the seller got the best price possible, which is a big statement to say to the league. That is a shot across the bow. That is him saying, I know what you did here. You screwed me. And then he also said, like, I knew about it, the due diligence process, and basically from the seller's perspective, it was really a non-issue. So I talked to someone who's familiar with big deals like this, not in the sports world, but, you know, in the banking uh, corporate world. And with acquisitions this large, there's a due diligence process. And basically there's, in contracts, there's often clauses and whole stacks of documents that say, you did your own due diligence, sign here, you're satisfied with what you're seeing, you sign here, you release all blah, blah, blah to pursue any kind of legal blah, 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 sign here. Does that stop a future lawsuit? No. It boils down to, you know, who has more political power in that situation, which lawyers are better, things like that. But what Ann Lauer referred to, the due diligence process, he would have known components of this, you know, the Dodonov situation specifically, maybe not the Pinto one, uh, as it were, with how that unfolded, but with the Dodonov one he knew and was basically got the impression that it was a non-issue. And that I, he's right to be pissed, but that's going to be such a legal battlefield that I'd be shocked if he actually moved down that road, which is why I think the best he could do within reason is that shot across the bow. Yeah, hundred percent. It's all I can do because he's not going to sue the NHL as he becomes the new owner. And then, you know, he's the pariah of all the meetings for the next 20 years. That's not going to go in his favor either. When he said something like, why am I inheriting this all this time later? Like you see his point, I would say the exact same thing if I was in his position, if I, you know, was a billionaire like Evan, but I mean, (laughs) he knows the answer to this, but this is what you bought, Michael. You own the thing. You are responsible for the thing. Have you not paid attention to the Ottawa Senators (laughs) for the past five to 10 years? My good friend, you were a minority owner of the Montreal Canadiens. Surely you know the circus that comes with Canadian hockey markets. Exactly. And the Canadians by all rights are like the Yankees compared to how the Sens are on. Like that's yeah. this foundation that's been running for century. I think there was another uh, sentence or statement he had. Of, I think, I don't know. I can't remember what the phrasing of the question was, but it was basically like, what are you looking forward to? And he's like, less calls from the NHL. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It was a combination of a guy who's pissed off, knows he's screwed, even though he paid top dollar for this team that needs a lot of rehabilitation. Like let's call a spade a spade here. Pierre Dorian was going to go no matter what eventually, and he perceives a lot of Eugene Melnick's DNA in this team that needs to be cleaned out. So he knows he's going to have to put money into it. He knows he has to put effort into it. He sees a slow start to the season. Probably would have preferred an expansion team at this point. (laughs) He was close enough. It's like, yeah, political theater. Yeah, it was calculated yet smart for the fan base and, and to get you know, future political points at the NHL. I'm sure they're not happy with him now, but blah, blah, blah. But also, he's just pissed. Yeah. He's just pissed. People, fans love to see that stuff. They love to see the owners on their side and understanding how they're feeling. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, obviously, Detroit hasn't had any big controversies like this in a while. But even think back to, um, what was it, the Seattle game, the stick throw. If Chris Illich hopped on a mic after and went, what are they doing to it? We've been irrelevant for seven years. All of a sudden we're good. And now they're allowing this crap to happen. We would have been sitting here standing and clapping from that press conference. Just one tweet. That's all we need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hesitate to ask for really engaged owners because it's almost universally a bad sign in hockey. Yeah. But 
Yeah, you're right. Anyhow, thank you, uh, Senators, for the entertainment. Okay, one more piece of NHL news before we get into overtime. Nicholas Backstrom uh, of the Washington Capitals, obviously returning from hip resurfacing surgery, uh, doing that to your body is incredibly difficult period, but as an athlete, it's kind of unheard of to come back and play at the level that he we're used to him playing at, you know, one of the most prolific playmakers of his time. And uh, it was announced today that he is stepping away from the game as he, you know, evaluates his options and focuses on his health. You don't want to call anything until it's done, but this does look like he's trending towards LTI retirement, medically being unable to continue based on, you know, how the recovery process has gone. Unfortunate. I think a lot of people might not appreciate what Backstrom was, especially if you're a newer fan. He really was just unbelievably good. Ovi doesn't get to the goal total he has now without Backstrom, but uh, it sucks to see a mainstay step away like that. Feels yeah. so bad for him too, right? Like you know the game's still there, but and he wants to keep playing, but your body just kind of says no. Like that's got to be one of the worst feelings like the passion still there the compete still there you just can't do it at the nhl level i really do feel for him because he was one of the premier playmakers in his prime you know one of the side effects of this that might screw over another player how many millions of dollars off patrick kane's next contract now that's what I just brought up, like uh, why I brought it up. Like Patrick Kane also had hip resurfacing surgery, was out for a long time. And, you know, even if you think Patrick Kane was a better player than Backstrom at his peak, which I think he was, how's he going to come back from this? Yeah, everybody just watched Nicholas Backstrom attempt to come back from it and fail one month into the season. How many people are going to have supreme confidence that if they sign Patrick Kane to a one or a two-year contract that he's going to make it through it? And be effective throughout it. I'd imagine that contract is... Patrick Kane obviously wants probably as long as he can or as much money as he can. I would imagine teams would be, be are becoming more hesitant for long-term deals there. And by long-term, I mean more than one year. Uh, that's fair to me. Like I understand there's differences in the players and how their age curves have gone and things like that, but there's a reason why... This hasn't happened a lot and had it be successful in terms of a player coming back and playing at their, their top level. So, of course, there's going to be a team that's still going to want to take the risk, but don't be fooled. Teams are going to see this, take notice, and bring that to the negotiating table. I think Patrick Kane's probably going to have to make a decision on where he wants to win more than anything because I'm not sure how much is going to be out there for him in terms of total dollars over multiple years. Yeah, he's going to have to take, I feel in all likelihood, a short-term, low-dollar deal with a heavy bonus structure, if he can hold up. I always thought, with Patrick Kane sort of waiting to see how the season plays out, that his ultimate goal for being back in the NHL is to win again. So the good teams are almost always right up on the cap. He's going to have to take, like what you said, Brad, a a low dollar deal with high bonus because I just don't know where the money comes from otherwise unless you know there's LTIRs and 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 trades for dollars out like I just don't see how that's possible otherwise anyhow all the best to Nick Backstrom unfortunate Washington man talk about a team who's expected to be bad is bad season getting worse like 
That's going to be a rough ride for them this year. They're not quite at the bottom. They still have pulled out after a, a bad start. They're 4-3-1 and one now, so nine points, but it's not trending in the right direction for them overall. Bad vibes. There's bad vibes too. Yeah. Anyhow. Okay, let's jump into overtime here on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Overtime, again, is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Podcast. if you want to support the show. The Discord, the season ticket giveaway, and the bonus content, not just bonus overtime episodes, but extra bonus episodes that we post. I actually just threw one up last night of these two guys doing their preseason predictions, all of that and lots more. It allows us to do things like run the show, host Winged Wheel Podcast Nights at the LCA, and support the Jamie Daniels Foundation, produce Expected by Whom, hosted by Sean Shapiro and Prashant Thayer, all that and lots more. So many thanks to our members of the Dub Dub Club, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Question from uh, Kurtiplas says, given how different a team can look from period to period, I'm curious what the teams and players actually do during the 20-minute intermission. I know that on some level there's a discussion slash speech slash coach slash process but for instance, are players watching tape as a team from that game that the assistant coaches are picking out during play? Is it more of a small group type breakout between various players? Uh, is there typically some kind of a soft psych up by the team leadership? I know something game changing can occur in that locker room, but it'd be nice to get some insight to what's actually happening. It's shockingly little compared to what you might think. A typical intermission will usually be a two to five minute coaches speech uh varying levels of anger uh depending on how the game is going just tweaking systems emphasizing points pregame points you know what they're trying to do uh maybe making some adjustments on the fly uh some guys might be going to get worked on if they're nursing injuries they'll go lay on the table trainer stretches them out for a couple minutes most part guys are just sitting in their stall kind of recouping resting getting some energy back you know, maybe grabbing a small snack, drink. Guys might t- retape their stick. Just simple stuff like that. There's not a lot that goes on there during intermission. A lot of guys get 50% undressed too. Yeah, yeah. which to me is psychotic behavior. Why? Oh, I it takes know. you two seconds to get your top Well, you got to untuck your shirt from your, your jersey from your pants. And <laughs> all, what, all of what other ungodly the, equipment you wear. Just the left side tuck. I only did the left side tuck. You shoot right, so you didn't even tuck in the right side. God. Anyways. Look, it wasn't rash. No jersey tuck is rational. That I is also, true. Okay, you want it, You actually want to know why I started tucking jerseys? Because I was a very small kid, and jerseys, when you were growing up, they didn't have every size. Oh, yeah, that was every kid. Yeah, and I just stuck with it. They gave you the goalie jersey. Yeah, well, every... <laughs> like, oh, sorry, Ryan. Yeah, he... Coaches were, were irritated that he kept picking number one. But. Yeah. No. Why wasn't 99 available? No. Uh, yeah. It, it, another thing is, Brad alluded to this, you'd be surprised how little coaches are actually engaged once the game starts. A lot of them have a mentality of like, let the guys run that room. Whenever there's a big speech to motivate the guys, I would say most of the time it comes from the players. Like the captain does a lot of legwork in that front. And. A lot of times the coaches will be within earshot of what's going on in the room. So, you know, if the Red Wings have a real bad start uh, to the first two periods and then second intermission, Larkin goes in there and tears a strip off the team. The coach usually won't come in guns a-blazing at that point because it's already happened and, and he can see his teams at least mentally engaged, even if they're not performing on the ice. Sometimes, though, sometimes it doesn't matter what's happening. If it's going bad enough, the Coach is coming in there and blowing out his vocal cords. It's uh, 
but on a normal, and I stress normal intermission. It's just quick uh, once over about whatever the coach wants to talk about, adjustments he wants to make, re- reaffirm some strategies. Guys get stretched out, but for the most part, they're just relaxing, recouping energy, getting ready for the next period. Uh, Sandy Pelican says, I know Reimer's 2-1 and one and has good numbers, but, and maybe it's just me, he looks like he's swimming out there, right? Yeah, you know, I actually said very much the same thing to someone. He's not been bad, but I feel like it's been a lot of luck and a lot of the team jumping in to bail him out at times. He's been decent, but his he has been, yeah, kind of all over the crease some games. I have I am not a goalie expert whatsoever, which is why I always hesitate to throw in strong opinions on goaltending. Reimer's footwork is bad in the crease. Mm-hmm. He his his I don't know what to call it, cadence of shuffling. Uh, his positioning with his feet, its it all looks weird and awkward. I, I don't know how to describe it, but something is off. And then they say, do you guys think we see Lion sooner? Does someone need to get hurt first? I think, and, and Ken mentioned this on the air on Bally Sports, The I think what the team is angling for right now is keeping Lion out long enough for the conditioning stint, which you can't keep pulling, but you can do it once, and the NHL will allow it to happen. They're getting near having to make a decision. We'll see what they do. I would love to see Lion in, but I think it might be a little while yet. Okay, we are going to keep going here. A question from Reed Matthews says, is it concerning that the Wings have taken a lot of minor penalties, 44, which is fourth worst in the the league, and are top 10 in penalty minutes, 103 minutes? Uh, It's not great, especially considering how many of them have come late. Yeah, it's late and how many of them are avoidable. You play hard, you get get a penalty, that's one thing or another. You have to take a penalty to defend a young star on your team or whatever it is, that's one thing. But the stuff like Perron, I think Rasmussen's taken some tough penalties this year. Rasmussen had a real dumb one against Boston. Doesn't Larkin lead the team in penalty minutes? Yeah, he usually does. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, he's usually the first one to punch someone in the face in a scrum, though, so that's where most of his come from. (laughs) Jack's dad says, hey, friends, looking forward to seeing you grouchy old men on Saturday. How smart is it to utilize Larkin on the PK? I understand why he's on it, but given how important he is to the team and how much of a catalyst he is to the top line, would it not be in the team's best interest to use Zarnik or Valeno instead? I think either of them can provide similar utility on the PK, allowing Larkin to save his energy for 5-on-5 and power play time and reduce the risk of injury from blocking shots a la Bertuzzi, Rasmussen, Zadina, Casper, etc. This one's a tricky one because if you're a team like Tampa or Toronto where you have a lot of really good options and you can throw out anyone you want on the PK, and you're pretty sure you're still going to get in the playoffs, you can do that. The drop-off from Larkin to some of their tertiary PKers is significant, and the Red Wings are by no means uh, comfortable to make a playoff spot, so they they have to pull off all the stops. Larkin's probably their best penalty killer, one of the best two or three at least. So if you want to make the playoffs, yeah, Larkin's uh, energy be damned. It's it's irrelevant if you don't make it. So you do what you have to do to give yourself the best chance of making the playoffs and just pray it works out. Yeah, I think you're right. Ideally, you do want to preserve him, but you don't really have the luxury a lot of times. Okay, folks, we're going to wrap this up because we have some housekeeping notes and then uh, we're going to record our bonus overtime episode. Winged Wheel podcasting at the LCA Saturday, November 4th. For the 
after event, we are going to be going back to Harry's Detroit. So uh, make it out there. Uh, shoot us a message. If you have any other questions, DM us on Twitter or shoot us an email and we'll try to answer as many as we can before the event. Uh, but it's going to be at Budweiser Beer Garden. You'll get an email from the Red Wings uh, explaining all the details, but the Beer Garden doors are going to open at about four. We're going to do the live recording at 4.30. Ken and Chris are going to be there and we're going to have some time obviously for meet and greet and things like that. You'll also be able to catch us in the concourse at the arena, come to the concourse table. We have some special edition merch to give out there. That's separate from the beanies. We're actually very excited to hand those out. So uh, we're excited to see you all on Saturday. Thank you all so much for tuning in. To all of our listeners, new and old, we appreciate you. If you want to support us and don't want to do it on Patreon, leave a rating wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Uh, Leaving those ratings really helps. And then hit subscribe. Tell a friend about the show. To all of our name-level supporters on Patreon, uh, this show it only happens because of you. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Brad's Lord and Savior Bradley Cleveland, Icon, Glenn Brabham, Croner's Left Knee, Ashley Van Conet, Sea Lion, Keenan O'Donohue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Brad the Booger, haha, Brian J. Bauer, <laughs> Carl Brutanen Analuski, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Craig Kibble, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, D Town Westside, Exquisitine Buble Schwinslow, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder of the Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Never Go Full Kyle, RA, Red Three, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan Vargas, Scott Martin, Screen Lube, That's What I Appreciate's About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, Brian Vasha, Iser Plan Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, Adam Rose, Andrew Broderick, Axel's Sandy Pelica, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Chuck Buffchest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheeseback Space Force, Connor Leighton, Connor, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, D-Boss, Snip Show, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Ferk Houston, NHL of Portland Baby, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, Healthy Scratch in the No Show, James Laporte, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans Derogatory, John Engels, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Nora Sider, O. Ophelia, Stephen, the Hodag, the Mexinadian, the Hat123, Winging It in San Diego, X, formerly A.A. Ron, and your second favorite patron. Folks, we'll see you on Saturday at Winged Wheel Podcast Night, the LCA. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.